Super Talk Mississippi media production. Moondog Makers and Bakers Catering Services. Taking ordinary to extraordinary. Personal and home private nights to massive events. From wood-fired pizzas to full gras. Get your three-pack spice blend of moon dust, moon crust, and moon rocks. Hashtag what is Moondog? Familiar food done differently. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music. It is a a rather delightful Tuesday out there. Rhino, how are you sir? Howdy, howdy. Yeah, it's a little better weather this week so far. Looking so far. Good. Yeah, looking good. There's a threat of thunderstorms and rain in a couple of days but nothing severe so oh i didn't know that thought it's gonna be good always scattered oh shoot well i'm headed up for a little golf junket over the weekend up to old waverly with some folks friends so we're gonna keep our fingers crossed that that weather cooperates with us looking forward to that on the program today at 10 20 steve azar you know who he is host in a Mississippi Minute, of course, a renowned musician and considered by many, certainly we do, to be Mississippi's music and cultural ambassador. He's going to discuss the third annual Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival, what people can expect at the festival, when they can attend, etc. At 12.05, it's Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd. The senator will break down the 2023 legislative session. They're all zipped up, signy died, and so forth. She'll also discuss the next steps to implement the postpartum Medicaid extension signed into law by the governor. And also, we've discussed it many, many times, but here we are. Medicaid disenrollment is underway. That went into effect April 1 across these United States. That essentially means that the continuous enrollment provision, which was part of the Families First coronavirus uh, Assistance Act. I can't remember. There's a word in there. I forget. It was the very first bill signed into law in March of 2020 under President Donald Trump. About $900 billion, as I recall. Families Response Act, Families First, Coronavirus Response Act. Is that what it is? You're looking it up. I know. Uh, but that was the big one, and it included an enhancement to the federal reimbursement. The federal, yeah, the FFCRA. There you go. Federal um, it's called the FMAP, the Federal Federal Assistance for Medicaid 
programs across the states, that, uh, that was increased as long as the public health emergency was in effect uh, by 6.2%. It also required the states to keep everybody enrolled on Medicaid on it as long as the public health emergency was in effect. Couldn't disenroll anybody, even if they were no longer eligible. Well, that all came to an abrupt ending April 1. States began disenrolling those who were not eligible. It is expected that, don't have an exact count, but most of the experts in the industry estimate between 18 and 21 million Americans would essentially lose their Medicaid coverage. That amounts to a little over 20% of total covered. If you extrapolated that and applied that figure here in Mississippi, it means some 100 to 130, 40,000 would lose their Medicaid coverage as part of the disenrollment process. And that's necessary because the federal government's going to send us less money. The idea was, we're going to give you more money, but you're not going to disenroll anybody. Of course, that's how they roll in the Fed. Here's more money, states. Do this. Always the old strings attached. So, we'll see what the senator, her thoughts about that, because that's, I believe, going to start causing a stir. You just know when folks find out, you're off, you're out. Didn't even know it was coming, most people. Don't even know this is coming. They don't keep up. Shouldn't have to keep up with all that stuff. Also, you know, uh, the public health emergency, the COVID public health emergency, has ended officially. You seen that? President Joe Biden signed it into law. We're done with that P-H-E. Now, I got a, uh, a private message this morning from good old Thomas in Greenwood. He let me know that he won't be able to tune in today. He's in, in um, rolling for it. We appreciate this, honestly. Helping restore communications. You know, that's what he does for a living. So he's there helping to get all the systems reinstated and back to an operational status for communications, internet, etc. He wrote me this morning, Rhino, to let me know, well, uh, I guess you were right. I'm paraphrasing a bit, because I said I think it is going to stick. You remember he said, no, they're going to continue to extend it because it it uh, enhances their power. That's right. During a public health emergency, certain powers are conferred to the president, to it, the executive branch, and same is true at the state level. Different states have had different approaches and different policies on that statutes. But at the federal level, it does, in fact, he's right, afford a fairly significant increase of power. And on that basis, he thought they're not going to end it. I mean, it's, it's a plausible theory he had. But I really did feel like, no, I think they want to, from a political perspective, say, we conquered this COVID thing. It's all because of our policies. Therefore, we're ending it. So when you're running for re-election, or running for election, I should say, when we're in the throes of COVID, it's, if you elect me, I'll get us out of this thing. Remember the 45-page detailed plan? Uh, but now that he's been in office, and will have been in office four years, 
at the next election cycle in November 24, now the messaging, the narrative is, we slayed that monster. <laughs> Vote for me. We're ending this public health emergency. And that was my theory as to why they would, in fact, let it stand. And that's where we are. It only took 1,124 days to flatten the curve. <laughs> Oh, gosh. It's, so much for um, two weeks. Exactly. Oh, should have fired old Fauci early on. Hmm. A lot of other stuff going on as well. I'm worried about the saber rattling around the globe. China's military says, we're ready to fight. They've been conducting drills near Taiwan. You've seen that. And I of can't course, help but laugh at that, because if they were ready to fight, they would have already taken Taiwan. You wonder about that as well. And again, is this just more symbolic in nature? You can't really tell with those wily Chinese, can you? <laughs> oh, Xi Jinping. This is the roided out, five foot nothing guy at the bar that's trying to pick a fight with whoever he can. <laughs> To impress the blonde at the bar. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. More details have emerged about the killer. I'm not calling him a gunman or a shooter. The killer in Louisville who has killed five people, wounded eight others, opening fire at a bank. So what I understand now, Rhino, is that, by the way, 25-year-old employee, 25 at the bank, apparently was upset that he was about to lose his job. Is that what you understand? I think he'd already lost it Okay. in the okay. previous few days. Okay. I missed the sequence there. So is that the way it works? You lose your job and then you just kill people? Uh, well, if one interpretation of his social media splash before he started pulling the trigger would indicate that uh, he was doing it with an agenda... And it's not the agenda of necessarily killing his former fellow employees. It seems like his agenda was to cause a big enough stir to get gun control passed. Wow. I didn't know that. And that's from stuff you... That's you, one interpretation okay. of the things he was posting on his social media beforehand. Okay. So you use a gun to go kill people to call attention to the need for gun control. Did I pretty much represent that accurately? Yep. Okay, that's oh great. These are some sick dang people, is what they are. Uh, and again, uh, this is just heightened and intensified the calls for more gun control. Yet nobody can connect the dots and explain how that would have prevented this incident or the one a couple of weeks ago at the Covenant School in Nashville. The gun control opponents. Uh, pardon me, proponents, never seem to effectively explain that, especially when you consider that most of the cities in uh, the country that are rife with gun violence have the strictest gun control laws in place. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well Studios. Steve Azar is next. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? what? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Check, check, one, where's all my volume? Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi, live from the Element Wealth Studios. We are pleased now to welcome our good friend, the host in a Mississippi Minute, a musician, and uh, considered widely, certainly by uh, this host, to be Mississippi's music and cultural ambassador, Mr. Steve Azar. Steve, what's up, my friend? Gerard, my brother. It's been a while. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, we got to dispense with the most important things. Is it your birthday? Yeah, yeah. You know, I got one of those birthdays where the country finds out when they're radio, they announce it. And so, uh, you know, I can't hide my age. It's part of the deal. <laughs> part of- <laughs> well, <laughs> I've been getting hammered by radio folks all over the country this morning. <laughs> well, happy birthday, my friend. Thank you, and uh, Thank you, and of course, many, many, many more. We appreciate you uh, joining us today. Tell us about the Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival. This would be the third annual. Yeah, you guys have been so supportive, and I can't thank Kim and Steve and Will and you guys enough. Paul, everybody, it's been awesome. Twenty, it's it's um it's our third annual. You know, I, selfishly, I love to uh, have my old pals and pals of my pals who, <laughs> when we all were in Nashville trying to figure it out, um, one would have a hit, and then we go, oh, we can do it. You know, another one would have a hit, and we go, oh, okay, all right. You know, we got to the point where we could literally go into a room when a song would be written, being written, and we go, oh, that's something. And we could pretty much call it. I mean, it was crazy. Now, sometimes, you know, there's great songs that haven't been released yet or, or out to the public. Maybe have been on albums that just weren't singles. But um, it, as time goes on, those songs find their place. Yeah. And, uh, and we believe that. But, yeah, I'm hosting about 16 of my crazy friends. And over there's hundreds of hits. I can't even count them, you know, so it's going to be a lot of hit songs. Um, and I always make this argument that you've never heard the song at all until you've heard it where it's come from. You know, I write for myself and I'm the writer artist, but these guys are writers who write for, for, for the artists. And, um, you know, from Darius to Keith to everybody, Reba to George to you name them, they've written the songs for them and they love coming to the Delta hanging out on the farm at the gin at Dunleaf, and uh, it's just a big old laid-back environment. And i got to tell you, they are low-maintenance compared to <laughs> folks like me and the rest of us with riders and all this stuff, you know, cheese plates and cheese trays. They just All they want to do is go to Jim's Cafe down here. You know, I, I don't know, Stevie, I, I'd like for you to talk about that a bit. I don't know how, how much our audience is aware of that, but uh, when these artists – are working through the contract, negotiating the contract to go perform at a particular venue, you're right, they'll have all these really interesting provisions and requirements. Uh, I actually was involved in that a little bit when I was at school at Ole Miss. My, my roommate was uh, involved in, in um, scheduling talent at the Coliseum there, but he showed me a couple of those contracts, and I don't remember the artist, but one of them was you had to have pimento cheese sandwiches cut a certain way with the ends yeah. of the bread cut off, and another had a bowl of M&Ms with no red ones in it and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Is this right? That's Am I true. being accurate there? 
You're being very accurate. And that, Eminem, that Eminem thing has carried on to a lot of people. You know, my brother Joe, when we were on the road together, the writer was more about him. Like, he had to have – eventually I asked, who's getting the, the mini tiny chiclets, the little small ones, like a case of them at a time? Who's getting that? And then finally I opened my brother's bunk up, and they were all stored there. And I said, like, get cases of them. So, Joe, if you're listening, you know what I'm talking about. That's awesome. Um, I was always pretty easy. Uh, you know, I uh, – you end up taking all that stuff home. Yeah. You, know, you think about it. You make a 20-day run, and you've got about 15, four, say 14 shows, and you're asking for about $500 worth of product from coffee to, you know, to, to loaves <laughs> right. of bread to this and that. And you, you literally go home. You're, who wants to take this home? Because, you know, be, the bus is full of it. You, know, you end up putting everything in the bays, and there's no room, and then you have a trailer to put extra stuff. And anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's absurd, and my guy's, that I bring down here, don't ask for anything. So I love them. That's awesome. <laughs> that, that is awesome. So what what's the community of folks like yourself, accomplished musical artists? I mean, you're, you're rare breeds. There are not many of you. Uh, when you're around your fellow artists like that, even those who, who maybe are involved in a different genre of music, you still recognize and discuss the specific and the unique talent, do you not? You guys talk about sure. that. Yeah, well, I mean, James House, you know, he wrote Broken Wing for Martina. He wrote I Ain't That Lonely Yet for Dwight. This is just an example. He wrote um, uh, 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 in a week or two for Diamond Rio. He had his own hit, This Is Me Missing You, and a couple others, but his last, five or six years, he's written most of, or a lot of, like, I would say three-fourths of Joe Bonamassa's music, who's one of the great blues legends in the world right now, currently. Yeah. So, they cross over. Um, uh, my buddy Clay Mills wrote uh, Darius's first number one single, and then he ended up went writing something for the Hootie and the Blowfish record yeah. with him. And, and so, it crosses all over the place. A great song, uh, Moose, Jim Moose Brown and Don Sampson just got a Willie Nelson cut. I mean, Willie Nelson at 89... He, they got a cut, and then Moose was actually playing on the record because he plays on Willie's album. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's this constant. Uh, you know, Brett Jones has never been here, but I know he's got I think six or nine number ones. That's a lot of them. Wow. He's got a lot of number ones, and uh, there are a couple Hall of Famers coming down. Bob Regan, uh, Brett. I mean, this it's pretty cool to not only have great songwriters but future Hall of Famers. There's going to be there, but, you know, we got a couple of them already, and the only thing separating them from the Hall of Fame is age, really. Huh. Um, they make you wait like they do in yeah. sports sometimes. Yeah, so. yeah sure. You know, I just I just curious, I guess, Steve, because uh, to, to just a, a average consumer of entertainment like me, whenever I see you, you uh, professional artists together in a, in a public setting, it appears you have tremendous respect for each other's talent. Is it that way privately as well, or or is there some, um, I guess, enclaves of resentment uh, among artists in competition, no. so to speak? <laughs> well, when we compete when we get on stage with artists. There's no doubt. Okay. You, first of all, you compete with yourself. I, th- I think it's more along the lines, lines of golf for me and you. Sure. You, know, you think about it, you're, you're playing against folks, but you have to play against the course first. Yeah. Yeah. So you always take pride in how good can you perform this song? How great of an entertainer can you be? How good can we sound today? Yeah. So especially when you're doing show after show, you're getting tight at that particular set. Yep. And so, you know, to keep from getting somewhat bored, I guess if you could, I've never felt that way. 
Well, you just strive to to be a perfect to have a perfect game, which never happens. So yeah. it's always this quest ongoing with songwriters. You know, this festival started with the songwriter series. We've been doing these. I'm going to Denver soon. We're going to Palm Springs. We're we're in Monroe. We're we're you know Oxford every year. You know, we Enid, Mississippi, and we, we've been all over the map and. It started with a series and with old friends, and then we started going, well, might as well have the festival to sort of celebrate all these series that we're doing, and all of us get together. And, you know, they come in for a couple of days. They're only going to play for about 90 minutes per three three art, you know, three singer-songwriters, but they love to come and spend two full days and hang out. And, yeah, look, there's no resentment. It's only a beautiful thing to watch. Your pals have success. Yeah, especially when they're songwriters. Now, when you get on stage, you want to blow them off. You, have, you know, that, <laughs> there is a competitive thing about that. But that's, that's cool. like game time. That's like game day. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, so does it? Do you, I mean, does it push you to to be better at your craft? Man, I need to get better. Yeah, heck <laughs> oh, yeah. No, man, Jordan. No, no, it does. It really does. And the more we play consistently, the better we get. And uh, sure. you know, I basically have my own. It's the best uh, the, to show you. The band and I are really working a lot now for Viking Cruise Line. They're coming and we're setting up Roadhouse style for 400 different people every other week, twice a week. And it's a matinee thing and there's just all this Delta food. And I'm playing all of my songs about the river and my Mississippi Delta and Mississippi in general. We got kids coming down the aisle singing One Mississippi with me. I mean, oh, that's it, is, awesome. it is my own. I'm sort of Buck Owens with, his, with my own Crystal Palace, sort yep. of. Yeah, or it's my own version of Dollywood. I, I mean, I'm telling you. So it's been a blast <laughs> and a blessing, and so we're really getting tight again. All right. So the festival, the dates, and how can uh, how can folks attend it if they want? 2023 MockingbirdFestival dot Eventbrite dot com. Go to that site. 2023 MockingbirdFestival dot Eventbrite dot com. It's cheap ticket. It'll be a little higher at the gate, but it's forty bucks. We're going to give some proceeds now to our to our folks just south of us that were devastated with tornadoes. First, it was the pumps. They couldn't farm, and now it's this. So we're going to turn this into a, a bit of a benefit as much as we can, and uh, and we're going to auction off a guitar with everybody's signature. Sounds and raffle off some, Anyway, some donations. Mm-hmm. So it's turning that you bring your own chairs, BYOB. we got a couple great food <laughs> trucks, doughs, and lost pizza. And it's just going to be a great time on the farm down at down in Leland. The Gin at Dunleith in Leland, Mississippi, the Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival. Steve, always good to talk to you, my friend. Love Appreciate you. it. Congratulations. Love, Love you, you too, buddy. Talk soon. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us, folks. I don't want to be me till Monday. I should adore fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Well, you dug that one up from deep, didn't you? Gunfighter ballads. <laughs> It was either this or Big Iron. <laughs> well, I'll have to say around my house when I was a youngster, you'd hear that playing on the little console stereo a lot. My mother really loved it. The great Marty Robbins. 
My dad loved Nat King Cole. And my dad was quite the uh, the vocalist. Um, actually took voice lessons when he was a child, growing up in New Orleans, and uh, was really, really good. But he, he could sing very closely to Nat King Cole, believe it or not. He hmm. just he loved Nat. Loved, um, oh, Tony, shoot, San Francisco, Tony... I can't believe I can't remember his name. Bennett? Tony Bennett, thank you. Also an Italian with a big nose like my dad. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, love that. So, today, did you uh, know, is the day... Well, before you get to that... Okay, sure. I was going to mention you were talking with, with Steve Azar in the yeah. previous segment about the riders. Yeah. And you mentioned a bowl of M&Ms minus the red ones. Yeah. And that... That's been on many a rider for many a singer-songwriter or, or concert performer okay. for years. I didn't know that. But there's actually a, a method to the madness. What's that? So if you have pages on pages of technical riders, which is what the, the behind-the-scenes people need to put up the rigging for lighting or sound... Yeah. Or if you have pyrotechnics, there's safety involved. And there's there's a lot of little intricate technicalities that need to be covered in the rider, or it's not going to be a safe performance yeah. for the people behind the scenes and people on the stage. So bands start, and, it, and people like to think of the M&M Bowl thing as a, oh, that's just them trying to be petty or trying <laughs> to have a little bit of power over the locals. or something. No. If you go into the green room and you find the bowl, and the color of M&Ms that you said are in the bowl instead of being taken out, yeah. it means they didn't go through the rider very methodically, so you need to go back and check everything else on the technical rider, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I am familiar with that, that tactic where you try to include really obscure, uh, unrelated, honestly, right. to the, the, um, the nature of the work being provided, just to make sure that it has been totally filtered, vetted, vetted, and um, combed with a fine tooth one, as they say. So, yeah, I've heard that as well, even in, in business contracts. And, I mean, this is a business contract. Yeah. It's a business contract for uh, performing artists. So I, I didn't know that. And my experience, my first exposure, I should say, to that goes back when I was in college in the 70s. But sounds like they've been around for a while. But what about the pimento cheese sandwiches cutting triangles, four triangles with the ends cut off? I don't remember who that was for. Yeah, a lot of little things like that are just, they're, they're looking for a bit of comfort on the road. So okay. maybe that's their favorite snack sandwich when they're at home <laughs> and they're, they're looking for that little bit of home in the green room. It could have been Boss Skaggs, now that I think about it, because I knew I, I did recall them coming to cam camp uh, campus pardon me, and performing. Could have been them. Now, there are examples of artists that have riders that are just ridiculous. Like, you'll have some people that'll demand you have a case of Cristal champagne waiting on them. <laughs> Like, that's just a couple grand wasted because they're not going to drink it because they need to perform. They're just going to take it with them. You just paid for their after party. Yeah. Uh, well, that's pretty much what Steve said, right? You end up with all this product you can't possibly consume, and you end up just taking it with you. Oh, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I, I had no idea such existed until, again, I happened to room with someone who was... I don't remember. There was some committee up at school that, that included students that were involved in 
and just coordinating talent that would come oh, yeah. uh, to campus. And, and he was one of those. He was a member of that on that committee. And he was reading through that contract and came and shared that with me. And I, what? <laughs> I thought that was crazy. Um, okay, so April 11th, that's today, right? Correct, Mundo. 1970. That's a minute ago. In the Wayback Machine? Yep, 53 years. Where's the Wayne's World diddly doos when I need it? There we go. <laughs> well, that actually kind of fits here. <laughs> the story, which was Apollo 13, left the surly bonds of space <laughs> to, uh, on its ill-fated mission, Apollo 13, the seventh crewed mission in the Apollo space program. It was, of course, intended to head up there to the moon and land. It launched uh, on this day 53 years ago, but of course the mission was aborted, certainly the lunar landing aspect of it, because of the old oxygen tank explosion. The movie is fantastic, if you haven't ever seen it. And uh, there are photos, of course, of the service module showing that whole like side of the module blown off. It's, it's really incredible. A fateful mission. Fascinating. 1970. 53 years ago. Apollo 13. Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes. Uh, fascinating. Probably the longest five days of their lives. And everyone at NASA. Certainly at in NASA. Hard to believe that it did endure for uh, five days. That's uh, one of the few things that's lost in the movie is the time scale. I would, would agree with you. In Kinda the movie, makes it, it feels like they, they get up there, they do a quick loop, and they come back. But it, it took them five whole days to pull all that off, and they had to survive. If that is not human innovation on full display and just how creative humans are when it comes to solving problems i don't know what is what an exercise Doing complex calculations with a pencil <laughs> and paper and unbelievable slide rule and then the the work around to filter the air with what they had on hand yeah in the movie i don't know if it it happened that way in real life but the way the movie depicted that you recall the uh one of the engineers, I think, head engineers, comes in and drops. Here's what they got on board. <laughs> Make something to filter the air so they can breathe and stay alive. Is it a square filter and a round hole or a something. square filter and a triangular hole? And it, 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 It's not going to work. you got to work around it. <laughs> that was awesome. Truly awesome. Uh, it In doing a little research on that, apparently the crew underwent 1,000 hours of training, 1,000 of mission-specific training to prepare. Which is what you saw in the movie where they're in the sim and failing. Yeah. And unbelievable, of course, the, one of the original astronauts got sick, had to stay back, and was trying to figure out how to power up the... Uh, Power up the limb, I think, was it not? Trying to well, figure they out. thought he was sick. He never actually it, got sick. It, yeah, they found out he, his 
was negative test, but they thought he was, yeah. So he he uh, kind of served in the role back on the earth of trying to help figure out the power-up sequence so they could get that thing rolling and get home. That was fascinating. Which that would that's just about the perfect liaison you could have in that situation. True. Someone that was supposed to be in one of those seats. Yeah, that was already familiar with the systems and that had been through all the same yeah, training exactly. as the people involved. Yeah, because you couldn't just go. Summon. Like if the roles were reversed and Kevin Bacon's character, the fill-in, had to be that liaison, he wouldn't have near as much experience on the sim. He wouldn't have had near That's as much true. time and understanding. It's true. Wouldn't have been as much help. That's very true. Fascinating. But, gosh, you know, that was a situation where the entire world was focused on that, honestly, and uh, cheering on. I mean, it's you, you didn't feel like anybody on the planet wanted the astronauts to be destined to, uh, as a permanent fixture in space, which meant that they would have died in space. Wanted them to be recovered successfully, return to the Earth. A little different, it seems like, these days. But we were riveted by that. Only had the the uh, three major news networks. Didn't have the 724 news cycle we do today. Imagine that today. That would look like incredible. and uh, Really cool stuff. But this was the day, 53 years ago. Of that ill-fated mission, the launch of the Saturn V rocket into space. But they all came back. As you said, you're right about that. The five years, it, did, it doesn't quite project that in the, in the movie. But I thought it was well done. Apollo 13. We got a lot more to talk about. Uh, there's this concept that's sort of sweeping the nation that I want to share with you guys. It's called ungrading ungrading. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd at 12.05. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay. The glory that was Rome is of another day. I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city by the bay. I left my heart in San Francisco. Not enough O's and smooths to describe that voice. The great Tony Bennett. 
That's uh, I long for the days when San Francisco was, in fact, such a charming place that everyone wanted to go to. Uh, one of America's great cities that, unfortunately, has declined significantly. Uh, almost feels like intentionally by the left, who has run the place for a long time, that are more committed to their radical ideology and uh, really thinking that their actions are noble and virtuous in nature, but in fact they're destructive. It, they, they harm the very people they claim to be the champions for. And that's, I would submit, true across the spectrum of leftist philosophy. They, they uh, promote it as being so, so fair and so noble, so virtuous, so helpful, so compassionate, but it's just the opposite. And look no further than what once was America's, uh, one of America's great cities, San Francisco. I certainly hope that the people of San Francisco wake up and demand different leadership to return the city to its greatness. When did Tony record that? 60s? It's a little different place back then. He, um, what a voice though. Well, my father loved that, no doubt. What do you see? First written in Brooklyn, New York in 1954. Okay, wow. Wow. How about that? Well, that's on the all-hit request line. Appreciate that, Rhino. Thinking, uh, I guess, makes me think a little bit about my father, deceased uh, in 1998. All right, this ungrading thing. <laughs> the march to mediocrity tramples on. More and more colleges are eliminating letter grades. Senior Julie McKenna at the University of Notre Dame says, I used to stress out over grades. Then she began taking ungraded courses. That's how they are described. That's the term used to label those courses where the instructor does not award a letter grade. Yeah, we used to call those pass-fail. And that's uh, exactly what is sort of taking hold and gaining a lot of traction across the country. She took four of them. Four ungraded courses. So she tells a reporter from the Washington Times, the real world isn't graded. Huh? Yeah, it is. Grades don't take into account your work ethic, challenging semesters, <laughs> mental health, or growth. So they're not is, designed to. <laughs> right. That's not the purpose here. So it's back to this refrain from the president on the campaign trail regularly, repeatedly. And it is extended somewhat into, into his term, his tenure as president. That is, it's time to reward work, not wealth. I say again, no. The market is what rewards 
work product. However, the market does not reward hard work. It rewards value. You part with your money when you feel you're going to get something of value in return such that you are persuaded to pay for it at the price point it is being sold to you for. It doesn't matter what it is, what product or service, including a college education, which I'm starting to question, the value proposition. Ninety grand to go to an Ivy League school now. Ninety! This is where the left gets it wrong. Hard work, don't buy you squat. Value does. Now, let's be clear. Pretty hard to produce value for society without some degree of hard work. But it's the end result value that generates wealth, not work. Sorry. We're stepping aside for a break. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming right back. Senator Nicole Akins Boyd at 1205. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it is midday. Super Talk Mississippi crude oil jumping up $1.54 today. I think it is going to continue to climb. Also, the Dow up 128. The NASDAQ is uh, in negative territory, down 48 points. Microsoft is down to my chagrin. <laughs> It is down today rather sharply, and it's on a report from some of their guidance. I think it was Goldman Sachs been talking to them, said that their their Azure cloud business is, um, is treading water a bit, is not really growing at the rate that it had been previously, and I don't think that's because there's a Necessary, a re, necessarily a reduction in the demand for cloud services, because that's not the case. What's going on here is prospective customers for Azure, for Amazon Web Services, also reporting a similar outlook, as is Google and other cloud services provider. What's going on? is companies are starting to put the lid on spending and making new investments right now, anticipating many experiencing sluggish demand across the spectrum of industry. So in a business, in a B2B, business-to-business service, such as cloud services, Microsoft Azure, as an example, a prime example, 
their prospective customers are saying, yeah, we need to do that, we want to do that, but we're going to hold off till we get through this, this rather uh, um, tepid economic environment that we have right now. The banking situation, I don't think we're out of the woods there yet. I'm not anticipating any announcements of more bank failures and closures, but there are reports now indicating that regional and community banks are um, seeing a, a sharp decline in volume of new loans. You've got higher interest rates, of course, at play. They're concerned about their liquidity position, condition. And so they're tightening credit standards. So you've got the combination of tightening credit standards and lower demand for loans because companies are hunkering down, not taking risk, concerned about economic conditions, the economic outlook. Yet, Corrine Jean-Pierre and her boss, President Biden, will tell you that everything's just hunky-dory out there in the economy. Just not true. So we're starting to see that influence and affect the critical banking sector. The market thinks the Fed is going to increase interest rates by 25 basis points in May, another quarter. There are, I think, some bulls on the sidelines holding on to their their cash that want to jump in, but they're holding off on it because they don't think the bottom is hit yet. And they don't think the Fed is done hiking rates. And uh, some are guessing that they, oh yeah, they are. The inflation thing has been licked. I don't think it has. And the price of oil creeping up ain't helping that situation. So it's just, gosh, the market futures, by the way, I'm looking at, at it on the screen, 73% chance of 25 uh, basis point hike in May. That sounds in line to me. So that would be the 10th hike, I think, since the Fed began its sequence of raising. We went from zero to around 5% a year. That's wreaking havoc on the markets and uh, clearly putting the brakes on lending activity. So community banks, regional banks, the other big thing going on is a lot of debt on the books that they have, that companies have, corporate debt. They're, it's coming due, principal's coming due, time to refinance or pay up. Many don't have the cash to do so. They need to refinance, but they're going to find themselves refinancing at an interest rate considerably higher than the present interest rate on uh, those debt instruments, those notes, those loans. And that is going to increase, of course, their expenses and and their uh, cost of debt service. So all of that's figuring in to the economic scene in the country. And this is going to play on the 2024 election. I really do believe that. Joe Biden's going to tell you that he is absolutely the greatest thing ever to hit the White House from an economic perspective. 
his detractors and opponents, and in the general, right now, if I were a betting man, I'd say it's going to be Donald J. Trump in the general election. And, of course, Trump will point to his successes as president from an economic perspective. And uh, the Joe Biden camp will, of course, blast him and trash him on the amount he added to the deficit and the debt, all a result of COVID, all of which the Democrats wholeheartedly, uh, unanimously supported. That's what's crazy about that. The same people that are railing on Donald Trump for blowing up the deficit and the debt. It's true. He did. Unbelievable. In the last uh, year and a half of his presidency, because of the COVID situation, these same people all supported it. They all voted for it. Unbelievable. Well, I mean, leftists, liberals, and Democrats wouldn't have standards if they didn't have double standards. <laughs> so it's back, just whatever the trend du jour is. It seems Hop like on the it. train and get upset. That's a good point. Get upset. That's totally right. Everything's about being upset. So having some grievance. It's a revolution. It's a, we're a grievance society. I'm not happy and. Sometimes it's taken to the extreme, like what happened in Louisville. This nut. I don't know what the circumstances are that led to their separation from the company, if they were they were fired, terminated by the company, resigned on their own accord, whatever the case. That's, at least at this point, stated as the cause of them acting in a violent manner, the most egregious violent manner, which is taking the human life of others. I, I can't wrap my head around it, but it seems like that's what's happening these days in our society. No different than the transgender in Nashville. I have some sort of built-up grievance. Interesting that both of these individuals are in their 20s. Is that instructive of anything? Is that when you're at your most whiny state in life, maybe? Most aggrieved, the world owes me stuff, state and life, perhaps? I think that could be argued. Sure seems Especially like Especially in the current social climate. It's the, it's the um, promotion of the entitlement-itis idea. It's been going on for 60 years in this country. You're entitled. And those people got more than you. Well, they're not entitled to it. You're entitled to have what they got. Yeah. It's the grade thing. We were just talking about it. So more on that. This is a phenomenon that is sweeping the country in the higher ed community and even in the K-12 community. And the schools are experiencing falling enrollments and extremely high expenses. It's keeping people out of college. And not to mention lots of other alternative occupations that are can make someone a dang good living without racking up a bunch of debt, getting a worthless degree. I mean, I'm not even middle-aged yet, but the cost of college tuition is double what it was when I entered college. Unbelievable. That's insane. I agree. So this, this concept, this movement being referred to as ungrading Susan D. Blom, a Notre Dame anthropologist who uses the ungrading method, 
says, I haven't given a letter grade on a paper in seven years. Imagine that. You do a paper. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of what just kind of invigorates and influences, tickles the senses. I mean, is there not some great sense of satisfaction derived from, I worked my butt off, I produced a paper, I'm out to get a high grade, and when you get it, I mean, there is a great sense of accomplishment that drives you to the next task, the next endeavor. What happened to that? What am I missing there? Now you figure out how you did through interpretive dance. I <laughs> got you. <laughs> We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. On this ungrading thing, this uh, professor is kind of leading this charge up at uh, Notre Dame, Professor Blum. She has written a book about it. She uses, uh, she describes in the book there are three ungrading approaches. Contract or labor-based grading in some first-year writing courses. As long as students finish the work, they can agree on final grades. St uh, number two, standards-based or specifications grading. I should say or specifications grading in science, technology, engineering, and math, STEM classes. Professors determine which concepts or skills students need and give assessments on learning. Again, this is in lieu of a letter grade, an objective score. Especially in courses like that where most of the content and testing of your proficiency in the context is an objective test, not a subjective test, like a written paper. It could be, but for the most part, those are objective type uh, courses of study. Yeah, did the chemical equation balance? Did the interaction happen? Right. I mean, because that's all... Did it generate heat? That's a yes or no. Uh, all, all based There's on... There's no feeling or vibes there. Did it generate heat in the chemistry lab? <laughs> oh, but you know, it's racist if you don't consider feeling and vibes in, like, solving math problems, right? Portfolio or conference-based collaboration in various subjects. Professors encourage feedback and reflection and determine the semester grade in discussion with each student based on the body of work. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that works well. So I bet they're not real open to feedback on how stupid this system is. Probably not. She published a book just a couple of short years ago about her findings titled Ungrading. 
She said she has participated in more than 70 talks, podcasts, book discussions, and presentations about this, up from 15 between 2017 and 2020. So it's nearly quadrupled. She said at least nine institutions have gone entirely grade-free for four-year undergraduate students. Now, I would, I'm going to read this list. I don't know all these schools. Some I've heard of, some I haven't. Hampshire College, Evergreen State College, Deep Springs College, New College of Florida, Alverno College, Fairhaven College of Interdisciplinary Studies at Western Washington University. <laughs> oh, like the sure. ultimate directional school. Exactly. Prescott College, Antioch University, and Goddard College. Three others, Sarah Lawrence College, Reed College, and Brown University, an Ivy League school, offered options for alternative assessments. This is the one that truly bothers me, and I know you've heard about this. I certainly have. Ninety-six medical schools gave only pass-fail grades in preclinical science courses during the first two years. You've heard reports on that, hadn't you? Oh, yeah. First-generation and international applicants have offset enrollment declines over the past three years. Now, in fairness, when it comes to the practice of medicine, yeah, that is pretty much pass-fail in the real world. That is true. So I don't understand how you would apply that to organic chemistry, but when it comes to medicine, you either know it or you don't. Okay, I, I will accept that. But I also believe that there are lots of courses, such as organic chemistry, where the principles taught, the concepts taught, the material expected to be learned and mastered is more objective in nature. It ain't just pass-fail. Right. You gave examples about chemical reactions and so forth, combinations of chemicals, that pretty much the outcome's been known since we've been experimenting with chemicals hundreds of years. That kind of stuff, yeah, you want to know. Not pass-fail. I know you worked in the, in the uh, pharmacy industry. You can't just pass-fail that, can you? Especially when you're talking about no. mixing drugs together, interactions. That's a critical part of that, of dispensing drugs. Is yeah, the not? contraindications are a, a a big issue because you'll have somebody that goes to one doctor for their feet and another doctor for their nerves, and both doctors, thinking they're doing what's in the best interest of the patient, will prescribe something, except drug A and drug B are going to cause your blood pressure to plummet if you take them together. Well, that's a contraindication. That's a, that's a check that needs to be in place at the pharmacy level. And I know that there are... Because it would be impossible for every doctor to communicate about every patient they've ever seen. Exactly. And I know that, for example, certainly within a single pharmacy environment, pharmacy system, that's all built into those incredibly sophisticated automated oh, systems. Oh, yes. So, I mean, a couple generations ago, that came down to the schooling of the pharmacist and how much they retained. and they They knew the major contraindications, but there might be some that would slip by, whereas nowadays... 
Yeah, with the computer systems and it's all automated, it's going to flag it immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's just red flags all over the place. Whereas in the old days, it was eyeballing by the pharmacist. Who often in those days served as kind of secondary physicians in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah. I mean, still do to some extent. Uh, kind of been hamstrung by Right. They don't say as much lawsuits. anymore. But I, I know there's been situations where, I don't know, I had ailments that I had to go back to get a refill, for example. And the pharmacist would say, well, what did the first dose or the first batch not work for you as well as you thought? Or something like that. Because they see, well, gee, this is kind of weird for you to come back for more, which was prescribed by my physician. And it just, no, it's just been difficult to shake. I don't remember the exact thing, but that, that happens all the time. And the, and the pharmacist will ask because maybe they'll recommend something. Maybe contact your doctor, I don't know, help you out. Uh, but th- they're not as interactive with you as they once were. They're not, Correct. I guess, the pharmacists themselves are not as sort of part of the overall treatment process. I think to a great extent, as you indicated. And that all comes down to generally how busy the pharmacy is. That's true. You go to a big corporate pharmacy chain where they're doing a thousand prescriptions a day, honestly, the pharmacist probably doesn't have the time in their shift to spend five minutes walking you through That's your medication. True. I agree. Whereas you go to a local mom-and-pop pharmacy where they may do a thousand prescriptions in a week, they have a little bit more time on their hands. They can come out there and help you out and walk through your medication and show you, hey, this over-the-counter medication you probably want to avoid, this one would be fine, all that kind of stuff. I agree. So back to this ungrading movement. My biggest concern about this really boils down to the title of this article. Citing, and there's numerous articles about this. This, is just, this was just came out today is the reason I'm sharing it. Citing bias and stress. So it's not that we necessarily think that grades are just a, um, a long-in-the-tooth approach to scoring someone, measuring someone in college. It's, it's bias and stress. That's what bothers me is that, once again, we're using how one feels, as you put up, all, as you talk about all the time, to, to make changes in policy, legacy policy. It's worked pretty well. What do they mean by bias exactly? I mean, like an organic, organic chemistry test could be somehow biased? How's that? If you wrap yourself in an intersectional pretzel enough. <laughs> and stress? Well, that's part of the college experience. Is managing of life, of life experience, but the college experience to prepare you for life after college is to manage stress and time. Gee, I wonder if those NASA engineers on the ground were stressed when they were trying to help out the astronauts stranded in space on Apollo 13. Great point. I think all of us in our lives, in our livelihoods, could point to situations where we had to manage through, deal with mitigate stress are we trying to protect little feeble college students from this no in fact they need to experience it to learn how to cope 
Gosh, that so that's what bothers me about this more than anything is we're we're turning everything upside down on the basis of bias and stress. Meanwhile, our foes across the ocean, they're just laying it on us. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi is with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping this into this segment of Middays, we are in the Element Well Studios. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Do we got some tickets to give away later on today? Do we not? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Mockingbird Music Festival that uh, Steve Azar talked about. And the Sports Talk guys are going to be doing a remote at Divini Equipment and Rental in Madison on Thursday for their spring dealer days. Come enjoy food from country meat packers, giveaways, equipment demos, and so much more, plus instant coupons from Kubota. That's Sports Talk Mississippi on Thursday at Divinity Equipment and Rental on Highway 51 in Madison. Speaking of central Mississippi, thinking about Madison, the garbage is piling up there in Jackson, is it not? The business folks in Jackson are speaking up saying... This is costing money. Yeah, because you have businesses with dumpsters, and they pay a daily fee, a nominal fee, for the the dumpster to be there for that day. But then they have to pay a bigger fee when it's full and has to be dumped or changed out. The problem is they're having to do that more and more and more because people are just bringing their trash to their dumpsters. Yeah. You know, one of our... Faithful sponsors, uh, good folks, listeners of the program. Randy Clark of Ace Bolt and Screw says, It's the whole situation. The garbage situation is just the tip of the iceberg. Their store down on Gallatin Street, the dumpsters there lined with other people's garbage bags. Of course, they're looking for a place to dispose of their garbage. Said he's fed up. He's moving the corporate offices to Madison County because of the problems with crime, water, and now garbage collection. Says the company's warehouse will remain, but that business is costing more the longer the garbage crisis lingers. Quote, Randy Clark said, It's not cheap, either. It's a couple hundred bucks every time they dump it. Yeah, like you just said, Rhino. This is terrible. It, it really is, and it's emblematic of the incompetence at City Hall. You may have seen folks yesterday 
I guess those of us that are in the local area probably more apprised of it, but there was a rather rowdy city council meeting. The mayor himself called for order, order. Probably seen that. He and Councilman Kenneth Stokes exchanged pleasantries. That's a tongue-in-cheek description of it. You know, it's sad. It's water. It's roads. It's crime. It's garbage. You can't you, forget the sewer dumping in the pearl. That's true. I I sit here find, and I'm finding myself. You got. The Capital Complex Improvement District now signed up. Well, it hasn't been signed, I don't think, by the governor, as I recall. CCID bill that uh, Representative Trey Lamar authored in the House. 1020, I believe, is the bill number, the measure number. But it, it's passed through the House and the Senate. I think the governor will sign it. I believe it's still on his desk, if I'm not mistaken. We may have to look that up. But nonetheless, I think it's imminent. It expands the Capital Complex Improvement District, sets up a new judicial district, and uh, brings in the Capital Complex Police into patrolling and serving the city, working in conjunction with the Sheriff's Department of Hines County and the Jackson Police Department. I believe that was the final, is that right, final arrangement? The way I understand it, yeah. Yep. So it's sad, in my view, that our capital city has declined so sharply through the years. And when you've got good, great businesses located in the capital city, such as Ace Bolt and Screw, that, let's be honest, they just want to serve their customers, sell them the supplies they need to carry on their businesses, to serve people in society. But they want to do that in such a way that they're not constantly looking over their shoulder for crime, dealing with water interruptions, now garbage. It's hard enough to run a business without that. That's what you pay the dang taxes for, to take care of those things. At a minimum. You can't function. You can't operate a successful business in such an environment, with these constant disruptions, and you're you're continuously worried about it. What's next? You can't operate a business that way. You can't. But it doesn't seem like that enters into the equation in City Hall. I just don't feel like that they're cognizant of that, certainly from the mayor's perspective. And I don't mean to lump them all in there. I, I know there are members of the council that get this, that have, have uh, confronted the mayor and been at odds on many issues, including this one. But we talked about it the other day. You, you, you reflect on the legislative session, and you know what seems to rise to the top is the highest-profile bill was one that essentially expanded the state's presence in the capital city. Kind of hard to work on all the other issues the state is facing and needs to be addressed by our legislature, our elected leaders, when they're trying to salvage the capital city.
keep it from imploding. They ought to do that on their own. And of course, we've discussed this before. I didn't realize it, honestly, until a couple of years ago, that from a legal perspective, counties and cities are established, empowered, chartered by states. County and city jurisdictions and authority is essentially granted by the state. That has nothing to do with states' rights. States' rights has to do with state and federal government. You get beyond that, the states are empowered to establish and demark, uh, incorporate, charter towns, cities, counties. So, because the question gets asked, well, why doesn't the state just take it over? We really don't want that. We, we don't want the entire taxpayer base of the state investing taxpayer funds and other assets and resources just to fill a vacuum where there's a lack of adequate leadership and, and uh, management of the capital city. That's what's happening here. It's um well, you don't want to have a full takeover especially considering when you have a partial takeover, the idiotic mayor goes crying about it on national media, claiming it's racist. I know. And and gets the attention of those who are not really familiar with the situation or don't want to be familiar with it and or are uh I guess concerned about taking the opposite side. Once again, unfortunately, race gets injected into something that's really not a racial matter. I don't think water, garbage, streets, crime, none of that should be race-specific. Those are issues that affect everybody, regardless of race. But unfortunately, in our society these days, we either racialize or sexualize everything. Just like the grading thing we talked about. That's what's at the heart of that. No doubt. By the way, online ungrading forums have sprouted up. They're attracting professors from Texas Christian University, Florida Gulf Coast University, Grand Valley State, University of New Hampshire, University of South Alabama, Colorado College, and several community colleges. This is really getting a lot of traction. A, um, a college professor by the name of Plante, P-L-A-N-T-E, also a member of the American Psychological Association, said online classes during the pandemic inspired him to implement a contract-based system in which he gives A's to students who complete a list of tasks on schedule. So you just do it on schedule and you get an A. Among the disadvantages, Mr. Plante says, students work less, learn less, and do not challenge themselves when they need to be building resilience and solid coping skills for the real world. Well, duh. <laughs> Golly. Conservatives say that this... Coddling has created a generation of snowflakes. Coming right back in the Element Well studio, Senator Nicole Aikens Boyd at 12.05. 
know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live. On Super Talk Mississippi. Wow! I feel good. All I can think about is Eddie Murphy. (laughs) So, this whole ungrading thing, I I don't know why that's got me uh, somewhat miffed. Listen to what Keith Mathias, an English instructor, at Prince George's Community College in Maryland has to say, overall, I find removing grades is a way to significantly reduce the stress associated with school. Giving students the space to prioritize their physical and mental health allows them to focus on their learning. (laughs) Except they have no way of knowing if they actually learned it correctly. I think they're missing that whole piece of this deal. So this this Mr. Planty, by the way, the clinical psychologist, Thomas Planty, he is a professor at Santa Clara University. As a college professor for over 30 years, I can certainly see the downside of traditional grading among today's youth, today's youth, who are much more fragile when it comes to anxiety, depression, and other mental health-related issues. They're much more fragile? How come? Maybe that's because of us. You know, I've, I've talked about this concept that I truly do believe is at play here in our, in our country, in our society, known as incumbency, where you've just not had to worry about a lot of stuff since you've been on the planet. You know one thing about many of these college-age kids? Never endured a serious war, serious conflict. I just wonder if that is maybe at play. So this is something to think about. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, keep electing the same people and keep getting the same results. Talking about the capital city of Jackson, Mississippi. Can we move the capital to Madison or Brandon, says Johnny and McComb. What do we do with all the people? That's, that's the sad thing about this, is the byproduct is this failed leadership it's causing all kinds of problems, such as Mr. Clark at Ace Bolt's group, a long-time successful business located in the heart of the city. Right? I mean, literally a stone's throw from City Hall. Capitol Street there. That's just sad. Gary in the Berg says, if nobody over 30 could vote, what would the result be? If nobody over 30. Yeah, okay. This is why the Biden administration is getting an army of influencers in the social media world together to influence the youth vote, which was big in the last election. Catastrophic failure of Republicans to reach young people over the past decades has to change. 
There's a lot of truth to that. And yes, he's right. You've seen the influencers. They, they've been promoting that quite a bit. And as you can expect, it is a kaleidoscope of people that represent all the different sexual orientations and ethnicities and races and however else we categorize and classify people. There's so many now, I can't even keep up with it. Every single intersectionality checkbox must be ticked. <laughs> you got it. And they are now taking... So the irony is it's reported they're going to use TikTok because that's so widely used by that generation. But at the same time, they're considering banning TikTok. Can you help me understand that one? Kind of. It seems like their ban on TikTok is really just an end around for the Patriot Act 2.0. Second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Well, they have banned it for use by federal employees. Right, correct? but they're using that as cover to also pass the Restrict Act, which doesn't even talk about TikTok. It just allows for the government to spy on every single thing about you. I got you. Hmm. I just found it a little contradictory at a minimum. Jeff and Carrollton says, I wonder if I could get a couple of grades from the 70s retroactively changed. <laughs> It's the freedom of ungrading, <laughs> dancing in the street, right? <laughs> it's the flower children of the 60s. That's kind of what this reminds us. In the meantime, before uh, we cut loose for the show today, I was a little shocked to see some reports about how diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, has really gripped the University of Florida right there in the backyard of uh, DeSantis's uh, Florida, the governor of uh, Florida, who has been a very outspoken critic of the wokeness sweeping the country, says, woke goes to Florida to die. But there's left-wing bureaucrats surprisingly embedded in the University of Florida, and they are also embedding radicalism into every department on campus. We'll share that with you, but right now it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We've got Senator Nicole Akins Boyd next. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, Hour 3, Super Talk Mississippi. We are live in the Element Well Studios. We're pleased to have joining us now Senator Nicole Akins boyd She represents District 9, which includes Lafayette and Panola counties, serves as the chair of the Senate Study Group on Women, Children, and Families, and Vice Chair. Uh, the vice chair, Senate Co Universities and Colleges Committee. That's a mouthful. Sorry about if I botched that up a little bit, Senator. But uh, good to see you. 
We got you on mute, I think, there. You getting it, Rhino? Yeah, we're working on it. All right, so we're trying to get the senator back on the line. In the meantime, uh, yeah, the stuff that's going on in, uh, in Florida, the University of Florida, is really mind-boggling. One thing I wanted to pass on to you is that the price of a stamp, first-class stamps, going up three cents in July. Less than six months since the last rate hike. Okay, we got Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd. How you doing, Senator? Good morning. How are y'all? We're doing great. We appreciate you uh, joining us today. You got a lot of titles there in the Senate, and I uh, had a hard time getting that out the way it's written on my sheet here. But uh, And you've had a busy session. That's why we uh, asked you to come on and talk to us. We have had a really busy session. We have um, really, this last summer, I was kind of honored to be asked to chair the um, Women, Children's, and Family Committee. And um, we met um, pretty extensively. Um, had a, I individually had over 50 meetings with different people across wow. the state. And um, our committee met through a lot of hours. And so we were pleased, um, really, that we hopefully have really put some significant pieces of legislation forth. We had about 11 pieces of legislation that passed, both Senate and House bills that we all kind of worked on together. And so we are very hopeful of some of the things that we're doing that we hope will make a tremendous amount of difference in the future for women, children, and families. And two of those particular issues, um, we've got two big task force that are going to continue to meet to make sure that we are really doing all we can um, to help issues, particularly one on adoption and foster care system. We kept hearing from individuals across the state of Mississippi um, about issues that they were having with adoptions and also issues that we were having on our foster care system. And so um, we have one task force that will really um, begin to really tackle that particular issue and really kind of do an in-depth study of some of the things we need to do in foster care. And then another issue, um, one that I'm really passionate about, is a task force that's going to be looking completely at early intervention. Um, we know that early intervention is incredibly important. We've discussed this. You've had me on before. But um, one of the largest return on investments that we can make is in early intervention. We know we get to these kids early. We know that um, we help them with the particular issues that they have. And we know that these kids um, can go on to be very productive um, citizens in our state. And so we want to make sure that we're doing all we can for those kids. Um, and we know that our numbers are really low um, in that arena. We're, um, last year, I think we served 1,652, 1, and we really should be looking at um, about 10,000 children in that arena. So it, this, so we've got some exciting things coming forth. We've got um, just a number of issues. We've extended postpartum coverage, which we think is really important for women um, to help them and um, get healthy after they've been pregnant for nine months and then make sure that they're really healthy, able to take care of their children. And then um, hopefully help, help them um, make sure that they're healthy to get back in the workforce because we know that that workforce um, is very important to our state. Um, we've also looked at, we expanded adoption tax credits, which 
I think is super exciting. Um, if you adopt a child within that's from within the state of Mississippi, we've raised that adoption credit to $10,000. So that's very exciting, really, to get people um, looking at adoption in our state. And one of the other things we did was we increased um, the tax credits that are allowed for contributions to our crisis pregnancy centers across the state. We um, Then we also um, really increased the contributions that um, our organizations could make um, when it looked at child care issues. And so we really kept, kind of looked at that as what employers could do to help their employees because as I go around and tour um, a lot of the industry that I have in their area, um, there's two consistent things that our industry say they need help with. And those two things are they need help with um, financial literacy for their employees and they need help with um, tax um, with child care, hmm. um, helping to make sure that their employees can get that really good child care in their area. And that seems to be a consistent mass- message no matter if I'm in if you're in Pinellas County or Peelhatchee, that's two things that we kind of see consistent across the state. Okay, so what exactly was done as it pertains to uh, child care? There, there's some additional tax credits that were enacted? There's some additional tax credits. So um, right now, um, a lot of our businesses are unaware there's been a tax credit available to um, businesses that um, offer on-site child care. And we only had a few businesses doing that in our state, what I found out in the process is a lot of our businesses did not know that that was available to them. But we also um, added a um, a um, 50% tax credit to employers um, the, that directly provide um, child care insight or providing a child care stipend of at least $6,000 to a licensed child care entity within the state. Okay. So um, this really kind of helps employers if they want to help the employees um, be able to offer child care. Um, and we know that, um, you know, child care used to be something that um, was not really talked about in the workforce. Um, people who, um, you know, those were kind of issues that were kind of um, – Handled. We know now in the economy where um, getting workers is challenging and getting great workers is even more challenging, that employers need greater tools to be able to help their employees and really attract those top-notch employees. And looking at this child care issue is very important for those employers out there. So um, we're excited to see kind of what this can do. And I think you'll see us continue to and see how we can partner with our employers out there to see how that they can help their employees and in turn how we can also help them as well. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really pleased to see that we're continuously looking at these real workforce issues within our state. Um, some of the other things we did too is we really extended um, legislation on our um, safe haven laws. And a lot of your listeners out there will kind of know these as the baby drop-off laws. Um, you know, prior, what we used to have in our state um, before we've kind of changed this law is that um, basically you could, um, if you wanted to um, surrender your baby, you could do this. You had a basically a seven-day window that you could surrender that child and you needed to do it basically at a, at a um at a fire station or a hospital. And so we extended that period of time to 45 days. Um, and we also then um, allowed if 
um, communities wanted to go together to put in what's called baby boxes now. They'll be allowed to put those at um, hospitals or fire stations. I think Ocean Springs has already um, got their baby box um, ready to go. Um, it also, the bill allows a parent to call 911 and surrender their child to any emergency medical provider within that 45-day time frame. And this is important because... Um, we, you know, you see across the country, we've seen in our state where children have been, um, you know, abandoned and um, they, you know, perished in that process. And we want to make sure that if, if, if somebody, you know, needs to surrender a child, and we hope that that never happens, but if they need to, that there's a way for them to safely be able to do that. So the idea here, uh, Senator, is for uh, them to do that without shame and without any sort of legal repercussions and consequences. Absolutely. And it provides them um, basically complete anonymity in the process and, um, and um, you know, allows them to do this and allows them to do it without shame. Yeah. And so we, this is, um, you know, I feel like this is a very compassionate piece of legislation that's both good for the child and good for the surrendering parent. Yeah. We're up against a break right here. Can you hang around? want to talk about uh, where we go from here with respect to Medicaid disenrollment. You hang around? All right. All right. We got Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd uh, on the line here. We're in the Element Wealth Studios coming right back. Super Talk Mississippi. Standing in the rain with his head hung low. Couldn't get a ticket. It was a sold out show. Heard the roar of the crowd. He could picture the scene. Put his head to the wall. Then, like a distant scream, he heard one guitar. There you go, the great Lou Graham, lead vocalist for Foreigner, bumping us into this segment here with Jukebox Hero. We are talking to Senator Nicole Akins-Boyd, represents Lafayette and Panola counties. So, Senator, there was some action uh, during the session to address what some have described as uh, a health care industry uh, community in our state that is at crisis levels. Uh, certainly, uh, Dr. Edney from the Department of Health has uh, informed that there's some 28 rural hospitals that uh, are in in very troubled uh, financial condition. So we we had a uh, I guess three measures to my last count that were designed to somewhat alleviate some of this pressure, some of these financial problems, but I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable long term. What do you think? 
Um, well, there were some short-term gaps. Um, at, there were some short-term fixes done. Um, we um, did pass kind of a um, a large kind of package for our hospitals in the state. It's one-time funding dollars to try to help um, many of them get back on their feet. Um, a number of them, um, particularly with higher costs of doing businesses, higher cost of nursing staff, and and the higher cost of everything. They're kind of in a financial um, crunch as we looked at this. And so we kind of did a one-time fix of um, kind of $100 million that it goes out to the hospitals across the state. Um, but I think you bring up a really good point in the fact of um, hospitals are having to pivot they're having to look. They're having to change the way that they're doing business. Um, I think you see a number of hospitals that are already have begun to make these pivots to see um, really what those things they need to do to um, how they sustain themselves um, in the future and look at those services that um you know that they need to provide and are and are cost effective for them to provide. And then we have to, and I think that's going to be an ongoing um, talks that we're going to be having. Um, throughout um, the next number of years is, you know, what does healthcare look like in the state? What do our traditional community hospitals look like in our states? What are the services that are essential that they need to be providing? And then um, how do we translate to all of that? So I, I think these are I think these are really ongoing conversations that we're going to be having over the next few years um, as we kind of move forth. So yeah. I mean, it seems to me like still, and I've said it many times on the program, the fundamental fundamental core issue that many of these uh, hospitals face is just the uh, provision of services that are uncompensated or severely undercompensated. So it's, it's a revenue issue. Certainly they need to address the cost models. All organizations need to be constantly um, paying attention to uh, their, their cost in place and how to make the, their organization more efficient, more productive, uh, more agile. They need to address that. They need to do that. But there's only so much you can do to offset free, and that's what's happening. A lot of free services being provided. Absolutely. When you look at the models, um, you know, one of the hospitals that um, has had particular difficulty when you look at, and you realize that 90% of their care um, you know, is, um, <laughs> um, was, um, really being performed at levels that really were not being, that they were able to sustain financially. Um, you, you know, that's a, that's a model that's almost impossible to, um, see how that we're going to go forth with that. So, and I think you've seen some, um, there's been some particularly bright spots, um, that I'm pleased to see, um, Penelope, when I, um, when I was running for office four years ago, um, there was a hospital that um, in Pinellas County that had gone bankrupt. They've got that up. They've got it going again. They've got it sustainable. And um, they're continuing to work to make sure that that hospital is, you know, that that hospital is sustainable. Quentin Whitwell's doing a great job with that. And I think um, they're going to, we're going to have to see that type of um creativity and really pursued across the state. I know he's helped um, a neighbor, another hospital um, in the area, make sure that they're open for um, emergency room visits and then um, be able to appropriately triage those patients and get them to 
um, larger centers for um, service when they need those services. Um, and so I think you're going to see hospital system continuously figure out what those needs are and where how they need to serve patients. So. Yeah, they, I mean, they're, no doubt they're they're getting creative, and uh, they're they're evaluating. Uh, again, uh, their cost and looking for ways to, to eliminate unnecessary or duplicative costs and bring those in line with revenues, but they still have the uh, perennial problem of, again, delivering services for which they are not compensated and paid, and they've got to figure out some way to, to address that and deal with that. Speaking of which, uh, we've got the continuous enrollment provision of Medicaid now has expired April 1. States are compelled by the federal government to begin the process of identifying those on their rolls who were no longer eligible for Medicaid coverage and uh, essentially terminating that coverage. It's estimated there are 100 to 120,000 Mississippians that may be booted off the Medicaid rolls. What are you hearing? Well, and I actually talked to a representative from Medicaid um, yesterday about they're, they're in the process of doing that. They're in the process of looking at eligibility on that. And um, that is a process, you know, that's ongoing and is going to be continuing um, as they kind of look at and reevaluate that. So, um, I, you know, I think that um, they're probably, um, you know, there's not really, est- you know, hardcore. We have some estimates yet, but we don't really know what that looks like until, like, kind of get more into this process, but they definitely are in the process of doing that. Um, I talked to him yesterday, too, and as the legislature, we passed, you know, the postpartum expansion from the um, extension, excuse me, from six weeks to um, a year, and they have gone in the process of trying to get approval for CMS for that right now. Um, And so they have um, made an amendment to the state plan and that they're waiting an approval from that. And they're hoping that that approval will um, post date to April the 1st. That's what they've asked for. So they're in the process of kind of doing that. And that covers um, women um, up to 194% of the federal poverty level. Mm So um, they're kind of in the process of doing that, and they've moved very quickly in being able to um, get that process done and started. Yeah, it uh, of course. And we got the federal government now will begin to phase out the enhanced uh, FMAP, the six point two percent that's been in place now for three years. That's phased out right. through September, so we're going to receive less money from the federal government, which places more uh, financial burden on the state to cover that shortfall and. The only way to really make that work without appropriating more money to Medicaid from a state perspective is to reduce cost, and it's expected that is achieved by reducing the roles and removing those who are not eligible. That's that's the dilemma. Right. So, and then and then that plays into when you remove those people from the roles and they go to their hospitals for care, then you've got more uncompensated care. Exactly. So it is absolutely a um, a circle. Um, we see actually in my household um, because I have a um, husband who is a physician. Mm-hmm. So um, we um, we see this um, firsthand um, on a daily basis. So yeah, and it's not going away. And I got a feeling this will be front and center in the twenty twenty four legislative session. And of course, between now and then, we got a big old election. Uh, you're running for re-election for your seat? I am running for re-election for my seat. So, okay. um, 
um, absolutely running and um, um, working hard. Got had to get out of session, and I'm back now, um, hitting it hard. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, do, do you have a primary opponent, Senator? I haven't checked. I do. I do have a primary opponent. So um, we're out. Um, um, yeah, this is the first time. Um, it's been so nice to be able. We were able to last um, after session. You know, I, my first two years of session was dominated so much by COVID mm-hmm. um, and the ability to get out and see people. So I have thoroughly um, enjoyed being able to get out um, and see people really again. And even last summer, they you know after we got out of the session, people were still a little hesitant. But that has gone away, and um, I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to really get back out um, and actually see them. I talk to them yeah. a lot on the telephone, yeah. but um, they are less, um, you know, they're less reluctant now and are fully out and fully immersed being able to get back into stuff. So um, um, this, is, um, this is going to be interesting because the last time I ran, I wasn't in office. Um, I was... And so um, doing this now and also um, balancing um, the responsibilities we gotcha. have you know, while you're still in office gotcha. is, um, is going to be a little bit of a challenge. It's going to be I'm interesting. I'm sure we'll be yeah. talking to you some more between now and election in August. It's just around the corner. Thanks for joining us today, Senator. Have a good one. We'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Half an hour of middays left. Stay with us. Mississippi. Interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. So, while we were talking about all the crazy stuff going on around the college campuses of the country, there are a number of states which have eliminated the requirement that a prospective employee or a job be staffed by someone with a degree. The sixth state in the country announced yesterday it was eliminating that requirement. That would be the state of New Jersey joining Maryland, Utah, Colorado, Pennsylvania, and Alaska. Many, many more are considering similar policy. Most states in the country typically require at least a bachelor's degree for most state jobs. I didn't know that. I don't, I'm not sure what the standard is in Mississippi. Do you know? I'm not sure. But, so what you've got is you've got a, a movement by employers, not just government. You've got a movement going on where They're eliminating. Many employers are eliminating the degree requirement. So at the same time, 
You got schools, as we've talked about today, eliminating grading, adopting ungrading as the way uh, or as an approach for students. And the, and the colleges, by the way, this is no surprise, are saying, you know, we're struggling to attract students. The expenses are outrageous, and many are finding alternative work without figuring out they can go get gainful employment, decently high pay, without the necessity of going to college, it used to be thought you could only get really high-paying jobs if you go to college and get a degree. Now, that's not to say that college graduates aren't, on average, paid higher. They are, but you've got to consider the entire universe of college grads and the sorts of jobs that they would occupy. But there was a time, I think, not so long ago, where, in general, we thought, well, if you don't ascend the ranks out of high school, go to college, get a degree, you're likely to live a, a, a life of um, where you've got a fairly low income. You're just not as, as high up on the socioeconomic status ladder. But that's changed quite a bit. So the schools are saying, we're looking at this ungrading concept because we're trying to deliver a better experience. Um, and, of course, you've got, again, employers saying, you know, we're not as concerned about these degrees anymore as we once were. I thought for some time we're headed towards a, an adoption in the college level, in colleges, university setting, the adoption of nonlinear degrees, meaning the standard, traditional you want to major in something, get a particular degree at a, at a, at a level, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, that that will give way to this nonlinear sort of, just go take some courses, get the requisite skills that, that satisfy the needs of the labor market. Employers say, these are the skill sets we need. And you tailor the curriculum to that may not produce a so-called linear degree, but it's highly focused on the subject matter and the skill sets needed to be productive in the workforce, somewhat the way the university is structured that we just did a remote at up at uh, East Mississippi Community College. Similar to that, I mean, that's a, that's a joint effort by the, by the school, by the university, the community college, and the private sector. Hey, these are the skills we need. Let's, let's um, design some courses around that. And once the graduates complete that coursework, they're good to go. So we're starting to see that applied across a large number of disciplines. And I think it's going to be disrupt. It already is, but you're going to see it continue to disrupt the college setting. I say that's a good thing. Colleges aren't ready for it, though. And as you know, generally speaking, educators at the highest levels, they're very protective of that tradition, of those, those legacy models. They're not quite as open to um, disruption, if you will. 
But I believe they need to be because you're not going to stop it. Not going to stop it. it and when change. you start looking at the bachelors versus the advanced degrees and the average lifetime earnings, the return on investment for an advanced degree is nil almost. No doubt. Because it's going to cost you so much more to get those advanced degrees. And over a, a, the lifetime of your earnings, on average, you will only make $400,000 more over your lifetime of work for having an advanced degree than having a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Now, the difference between a bachelor's degree and a high school diploma, that's a little bit bigger. That's, uh, on average, over a lifetime of earnings, someone with a bachelor's degree will earn between 900000 and $1.2 million more over a lifetime than someone with just a high school diploma, yeah. on average. I mean, there are outliers in every situation, but... Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely true, exactly what you said. But that, that's that been building up for a while. I mean, that's been taking taking hold, and we've been on that path for some time. But in general, I, I think, uh, and, and I guess I... I seek your opinion on this, Rhino, that in the college setting, the typical higher ed setting, um, it is somewhat protectionist that the the education community, the professorship community, they're, they're very protective of those domains, maybe more so than the political realm is. You see a lot of protectionism at play there, of course. And maybe that starts with the concept of tenure, which has been around a long time. So it's, hey, no matter what, I'm good to go, sort of deal. And in general, most of the time, it's renewed. And it's, um, it's fairly reliable, stable employment. It's not like the private sector, where you could be terminated on a whim on any given day and uh, that doesn't mean that often that prompts a court case, because it does, unfortunately, wrongful termination. But in general, certainly in, in states where we have at-will employment like we do here in Mississippi, uh, you know, that's the part of the environment. Now, if you're doing your job, given the tightness of the labor market, most employers aren't inclined to let you go. In fact, they're inclined to, in a tight labor market, put up and endure a whole lot more than they normally would just because there's not this giant pool of prospective employees to replace you waiting in the wings. So you you see a little of that hanging on kind of going on right now um, just because of the tight labor market, so many people on the sidelines. Rhino and I picked this up, folks, uh, about the same time we got teased on reports that Tupperware, Tupperware, you know who those guys are, they make that plastic storage stuff. They said that they have informed the Securities and Exchange Commission that they doubt they can continue to operate based on their finances and sluggish sales. They say that they could, in fact, default on some of their their debt, their agreements. I wonder if they got a little out over their skis, considering they saw a, a resurgence 
during the pandemic. It's true. In popularity. And you you saw their sales increasing. You saw their market share increasing. It feels like they tried to ride the wave, but the wave wasn't nearly as big as they were hoping. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around, but they lost $14 million bucks on sales of $1.3 billion. We were talking about the health care situation a minute ago. Tim in Cleveland asked a question. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It is my understanding that the hospitals fired a lot of their staff during the pandemic because they would not take the vaccine. Then they rehired those same people on a contract basis for a lot more money. Is that correct? No, it's not. Less than 1% of health care workers were terminated for not taking the vaccine. Many of those have been embraced and brought back. Um, the biggest problem is a lot of people that worked in healthcare just said, I'm not doing this anymore. That's by far the bigger problem. Just, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not worth it. And the pandemic just really sent them on their way. It was just overworked uh, because people were getting sick. A lot more sick people to take care of. Coming right back, final segment, some tickets to give away. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, it's midday. Super Talk Mississippi, Gerard and Rhino. All right, Rhino, we got some tickets. Oh, yeah. The Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival is taking place this Friday and Saturday at the spectacular Janet Dunleith and Leland. A gaggle of Steve Azar's songwriting friends are going to be joining him on stage for an event you don't want to miss. Tickets are on sale now. You just got to go to 2023mockingbirdfestival.eventbrite.com to buy tickets or... Now you've got a chance to win a pair of tickets to the Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival. All you got to do is be lucky number 26. Be the 26th person to text into the C Spire text line. That's 601-879-4395. And text in the phrase Mockingbird. Be number 26 and you'll win a pair of tickets to the Mockingbird Songwriters Music Festival taking place this weekend in Leland. There you go. All right. On the C Spire text line, the 662, not sure I'm following this comment here, Rhino. Oh, I have been waiting to hear the outrage from true conservatives on these tens of millions in Band-Aid ideas that use taxpayer dollars to just get us down the road a little while. Not hearing much while, where did the talk of sending the huge surplus back to the people who paid the taxes? Well... I guess that's in reference to the uh, the measures passed this session addressing the health care situation in the state. One of those was a hundred and five, I think, million dollar, the final figure, hundred and five million dollar grant program to the state's hospitals, available to the state's hospitals. 
to try to address their financial shortfalls. I mean, it's a drop in the bucket, honestly. Uh, million, uh, millions and millions and millions, in fact, billions is what's needed to address the problem, uh, or the shortfall, I should say. With respect to where did the talk of sending the huge surplus back to the people who pay the taxes, well, that's just because the, the leaders couldn't get together on tax reform. The Speaker of the House, of course, and in general, the House of Representatives still uh, advocates for elimination of the income tax through some phased-out approach, whereas the uh, certainly the lieutenant governor and maybe others in the Senate uh, proposed the idea of just one-time lump-sum payments to taxpayers. Um, and so they couldn't get together, is the bottom line on that. You're not going to see any, any legislation with either of those issues exclusively get support in both chambers such that it uh, passes and is transmitted to the governor for enactment. And that's why we didn't get anything. Also, you're hearing a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion about eliminating the grocery tax in lieu of eliminating the income tax. And of course, we had Representative Becky Curry on the program a few weeks ago, and I asked the question, you recall, Rhino, if we had a bill today put on the floor to eliminate the grocery tax, do you think it would pass? She said, and I, I think I'm quoting here, this afternoon, as I recall. So the challenge with that, of course, is that if we eliminated the grocery sales tax, that pretty much takes off the table the opportunity to eliminate the income tax. That would nullify that possibility. And so I think that's why that didn't get any traction, because I think there's still some holdout by members of the legislature who want to eliminate the income tax to get that done. Now... Maybe because it's election season and the final session prior to the big statewide elections, that's just a, a uh, heavy lift. But we're coming back in 24. I bet that makes its way back into the chambers for deliberation. We'll see where that, that goes. But I mean, the average voter can push it in that direction by contacting whoever they plan to vote for and voicing their opinion on it. Yeah. Exactly. And If their voicemail and email is full of voicemails and emails from their constituents saying, hey, why didn't this get done? I want this. Then it's more than likely going to come up again I after agree. the election. And you know something else, Rhino? We got, we got some tax income tax reform last year, some income tax reduction. One, which I fully support. We wanted full elimination, at least a phase out of it. But now that we've got some income tax reform, some income tax reduction, what's happened is many Mississippians have been totally removed from the income tax rolls, so they're not so much interested in pushing for full elimination of the income tax. They're not paying any now, so yeah, they want the grocery tax. And I think that was the risk of getting the minimum done. Now it makes it harder to uh, achieve the big prize, which is full elimination of the income tax. That's why there's such a support for the grocery tax now. A lot of people aren't paying income taxes now. We are out of time here today. We thank you for joining us. Join us tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless.
Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.